Hey lovelies, what the heck do you wear to a fifth date or to a not so super formal business meeting? You know, those in between events that are definitely not Shabbos or special occasion or dressy, but they're not quite regular every day either. Well, I designed a top and skirt especially for these times. Let's start with the top. The fifth day top is all the comfort of your favorite t-shirt with the elegant draping of a formal blouse. It features an adjustable bow and luxurious rib knit fabric to get the perfect look and feel every time. And when you adjust the bow, you also change the shape of the drape. And if you don't want to adjust it, just leave it tied exactly how it comes and you're good. This amazing top matches with the fifth date skirt, which is an asymmetrical skirt with a really flattering yoke and draped front that has the best fit around the butt you will ever see the details all in the front but the party's in the back if you know what I mean it's so good it's not tight it just really drapes really nicely around the butt the top comes in three colors cobalt which is a fantastic kind of purpley blue slate which is more of a gray blue and black which is black. Um, and all of those three colors work really well with either of the two skirt colors, which is slate, which is again, kind of a blue gray, perfect match with the slate of the top and steel, which is kind of like a darker gray. It has black threads in it. So it's somewhere between um, a black and a really dark gray. Before you ask, by the way, they are sold completely separately. So you can mix and match to get the perfect combination of colors that you like and also of sizes. I'm talking to you lovelies who wear a different size on top and bottom. Just order whichever size you need for the top and the bottom. Both pieces are going on pre-order for 48 hours only starting 8 p.m. Monday, June 27th. That's the day this episode was published. So Monday night through Wednesday night is when the pre-order is open. Remember that pre-ordering guarantees you get the size and color you need without any launch day jitters because the pre-order cannot sell out. I make whatever is pre-ordered and then I make the amount that I'm able to hold for inventory. I have super limited space, so I am not able to hold a ton of inventory. Once it does come in stock, quantities will be limited. Pre-ordering is the way to go. Both the top and skirt are guaranteed to ship by July 25th. Here's, by the way, how you know if the pre-order is still open, because when I say it closes Wednesday night, I'm, I'm telling a little white lie. It really closes Thursday morning because... Thursday morning when I come into the office, that's when I close the pre-order and finalize all of my production numbers, um, except that I say Wednesday night because I can never know what time Thursday morning I'm getting get into the office because uh, mornings are not my jam. So here's how you check if the pre-order is still open. You're going to want to go to impactfashionnyc.com. If you see the fifth day top and skirt listed right there on the top of the first page, you can still pre-order. If you are doing this on Thursday morning, you're going to want to do that fast because I will be taking it down pretty soon. Um... So yeah, that's what you're going to want to do. If you can see it there, then you can still pre-order. Um, what did I forget? Oh, um, it comes, of course, in a super inclusive size range. The top is available in extra small through 2X, and the skirt comes in sizes 2 through 24. You can pre-order them both at impactfashionnyc.com. Thank you so much for your support, and enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. And on today's show, I ask your questions to a nutrition therapist and founder of Intuitive Eating. She debunks the myth of food addiction, discusses intuitive eating and weight loss, shares her take on processed food and using food as medicine, plus how body image ties into all of this. It's not often that I have guests back on the show, so when I do, it's always for a good reason. After I had Elise 
Resch on the show last time to discuss her work and intuitive eating, she offered to come do this question and answer session where she can address your questions. Well, questions came in, I gathered them all up, and here we go. Hi, Elise, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good, thank you. I'm very, very nice. excited to have you on again, and thank you so much for taking the time to come on again. Um, if uh, if you listen to the previous episode that I did with Elise, where we discussed intuitive eating and and all of that, she offered at the end, love, you know, very lovingly to come and do a and A episode, and that's what this is. Um, after that episode, a lot of different questions came in that fell into some main categories, and that's what we're going to tackle today. Um, if you have not listened to my first episode with Elise, I highly recommend that you scroll way back in your podcast feed um, and listen to that because in that episode we do a much more in depth view of what intuitive eating is and how it can fit into our lives. Um, I'm also going to link it in the show notes here. Um, but Elise, for someone who might not have heard that episode or is not familiar with what you do, can you give me, you know, like a, a three second version of what is intuitive eating and, and how does it work? Well, the easy definition of intuitive eating is that it is a self-care platform, a self-care philosophy based on 10 principles that are not rules they're just guide you know guidelines on how to get reconnected with that internal wisdom about eating that you know every just about every baby is born with i have a better definition which will take another minute um it's a dynamic interplay of instinct emotion and thought which takes into consideration three parts of our brain the reptilian or instinctual part of the brain the emotional or uh, limbic limbic mammalian part, which is the seat of emotions and social behaviors, and the neocortex, the prefrontal cortex, which is where we think. So intuitive eating respects signals that our bodies give us, respects the fact that we have emotions that can sometimes set our signals off, and then uh, is grateful for the thinking part of our brain that helps us soothe ourselves and navigate you know, what our needs are. It's all about, it's really all about looking into our needs and taking care of our needs. Right. And it also plays into this idea of diet culture, which um, <laughs> I love that reaction um, yes. diet, with diet culture, as I understand it. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, is just the idea that surrounds us that we have to be policing the way that we eat and that we must be continually pursuing thinness. Yeah, so it's based really on uh, this, you know, idolizing this culturally thin body. In our culture today, if you go back in history hundreds of years ago, that was not the, you know, considered the ideal body. But it's it's um, elevating that as the only way that we should look. And to get there, uh, it promotes dieting and restriction. So and good foods and bad foods, making the person feel bad if they eat something that uh, is not going to promote weight loss to get them to that ideal. And it's also, uh, to me, a social justice issue because I don't know if I said this last time, but there is oppression uh, of uh, people in bodies that don't fit this ideal and weight stigma, weight bias leading to weight stigma, uh, which is very um, medically unhealthy for someone to be feeling uh stigmatized all the time and afraid that they're going to be judged or, you know, or bullied. And that raises cortisol levels and cortisol is our stress hormone. And that is really, really, really unhealthy. So there's many factors in it and it's a, it's toxic and dangerous. And there are, well, I'm not going to say I'll necessarily come on another session to talk about this, but there are racial origins to fat phobia. And so it's, uh, you know, 
Yeah, there's a lot to say, especially when you when you think about something in a medical sense where, you know, like I've read stories of people who, you know, a a woman in a larger body who shows up to a doctor's appointment says that she's experiencing stomach pain, is told just to lose weight. And it is only several months later when that pain is persistent or when she's finally able to get someone to pay attention to her, that they discover something much more serious, you know, you know, something like a a colon cancer or stomach cancer or something like that. And that's just and she wasn't taken seriously because they were all the doctors saw were you know a fat person and it's well first we need to cure the fatness and then we can see what where this pain yeah. is and, from. and then that leads to people not wanting to go to the doctor being terrified that they're going to be discounted uh or told to lose weight when they've been trying all their lives and it doesn't work and so either they go there and the doctor doesn't you know, acknowledge or, or look into what's really going on, or they just don't go and they don't get that early diagnosis where that could save their lives. Right. It's, it's really dangerous. Yeah, it, de- it definitely is. And these are all topics, like I said, that we covered in the first episode that yes. we did, which is linked in the show notes. So what I want to do now okay. is the main reason why we're here and we are going mm-hmm. to dive into the questions that came in. Um, so uh, the, there were a lot of basically main categories that our questions fell into. Um, and the first one was about cravings um you know you know someone phrased it pretty nicely doesn't our body crave more sugar or salt the more we eat it what does intuitive eating say about the addictive nature of food i have a problem with using the word addictive in relation to food yes what what are your thoughts yes oh i have so many thoughts on that question let's start there since that's what you went to there is no validity to the concept of food addiction there is nothing that supports that Uh, people who believe in it say, well, look at dopamine, dopamine lights up, you know, when you, when you're eating sugar is often the common, you know, enemy that they, they come up with. Well, lots of things light up our dopamine. If we, if we go out and we exercise, if we listen to beautiful music, if we are, you know, in love, I mean, it's all kinds of things that will increase our dopamine levels. Dopamine's a survival part of our body. We needed to get excited to eat when we were very primitive in order to go after food, you know? So uh, there is not, most of the studies that they do is on animals. And in fact, they'll, they'll say, oh, well, the rats, you know, eat more sugar when they're given sugar, but they haven't been given any sugar in beforehand. So if they give them sugar on a regular basis, they, you know, they don't, you know, they're not drawn to it in the same way. Same thing with, there was a study done uh, at Yale, which, you know, people would say, oh, well, that's a, you know, reputable university. And well, their study did not at all address whether people had been restricting beforehand, whether they'd been dieting, and now they're given certain foods and they just keep eating it. Well, okay, that's not addiction. That's a rebound from restraint and restriction. So that's, you know, so cravings, that was the first part of the question. Um, The more we crave something and we give it to ourselves, the more it just takes its place. Uh, We were, we were both talking about oral surgery, which I've had and uh, Rifki's had in the past and where you can only eat, you know, smoothies or, or ice cream. And after a while, you just don't even want to look at it because it's there and you have it every day. And so no, it doesn't cause hot, greater cravings of sugar and salt, which was asked, unless you've been restricting them. And now you're giving yourself partial permission to have it. Okay, I can have it now. Uh, if I don't do okay with it, then, you know, I'll, I'll take it away later or I'll go on a diet later. Well, yes, then the cravings are increased because you're in fear of future deprivation. 
But really, it's the opposite. If you have full permission, what we call make peace with food, to eat whatever it is that is appealing to you, that tastes good, that feels good in your body, whenever you want it. And I am right. a testament. I, I can be a testament. To, uh, you know, I can give you a testimony. Forty years, I haven't had an issue with eating. And prior to that, I was dieting and binging and dieting and binging, restricting and binging. So anyway, right. And it's also see the thing to me particularly about this question that that struck me is that it seems to be coming, like you said, from a place of deprivation. You know, when you can't have something. I mean, listen. Ever, you know, after Pesach, all every all anyone wants to eat is pizza. It's like yeah. you've never. It's like, and and I was thinking, I was like, there are definitely weeks in my life when I have not had a slice of pizza. But by the time you hit day six or seven, all I want is that damn slice. And 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 it's that same kind of thing where it fits into that same, um, you know, restriction dynamic where yeah, if you haven't had something for a significant amount of time, and then you only allow yourself to have one cookie or whatever it is, then yeah, you're going to crave more of it because the cookie's delicious. Well, let me tell you something funny. I get these wonderful chocolate chip kosher for Passover cookies every year. And I buy several, you know, uh, uh, as many as I can, because I love them. And I can't wait to have them. And I, and I want more. And then after they're there for a while, it's like, ah, Okay, you know, exactly. I, I, I'm so afraid of being deprived of it because it's going to be a year before they bake them again. <laughs> right, exactly. Because right. you know right. that they're only going to be available then. For, and right. and, it, and it's that same kind of thing where it's like, you know, when you talk about cravings, in a lot of ways, the best thing that you can do for a craving is just to eat whatever it is that you're craving. Yeah, and to examine what is behind this drive to restrict yourself. What's really behind it? Because so often it's it's couched as a wellness thing. You'll be healthier. You shouldn't eat this food, which I don't buy at all. But um, if you really go deeply, I would say 99% of the time it's people who want to lose weight. And so right. that's why they restrict it, even though they're calling it a health issue. Right. And you know, this brings us into the next main question that want, we had a lot of people wanting to know if intuitive eating could help them lose weight. Um, and <laughs> which I, I find ironic. Um, the, the question, I, I want to read this specific phrasing from this okay. specific person, which was can intuitive eating aid in weight loss, if one's weight is really an issue, and it's important for them to lose weight. So there's a lot to unpack. Oh, there. yeah, just that's exactly what I was thinking. Um, the need to lose weight right there you know let's put that in neon lights uh nobody needs to lose weight anybody who is prescribed weight loss for any reason uh it's a setup it's a setup to uh make them feel like a failure it's a setup to actually gain more weight so this needs to lose weight is coming from the medical model i think that's so tied into um i don't even like to say the word the o word uh, as a, you know, a, a health measure and doctors will often say, you need to lose weight. You have to lose weight or, you know, so you're, um, I don't know, so that you won't have pain in your knee. Lots of people who are, don't have, live in larger bodies have pain in their knee, you know? So it's, there, there, there is no need to lose weight. It's an emotional need to fit in. It's an emotional need to, to, um, avoid being stigmatized because our culture is so stigmatizing around it. So that's that was the last part of the question. The middle part, um, after the- If one's weight is really an question, issue. Well, yeah, what does that mean? It's really an issue. Let's, let's look at that. Let's look at um, 
what is promoting a, a sense of, may, of of it being an issue? Why, you know, let's question why why should it ever be an issue? Why should a person's size ever be an issue? Now, that being said, is somebody lacking self-care because they feel so bad about themselves because they've always been judged for their weight? So the issue may be self-care. Are they sleeping enough? Are they, um, you know, eating enough? Sometimes people don't eat all day long and then, you know, eat to a point of not feeling good at night. Are they moving their bodies in joyous ways? Sometimes people won't even walk out the door because they're feeling so bad about themselves. So you know, that's my, re that's my reaction to that. So the first part of the question, oh gosh, intuitive eating is not the hungerfulness diet. It is not, um, the purpose of it is not weight loss. Do people's weight, you know, does weight change sometimes? Sometimes, sometimes people gain weight because they've been restricting themselves beforehand. Sometimes people say that stay the same. And sometimes people, you know, their weight does, um, you know, they do lose some weight, but that's, it's not the intention or the focus. It may be a byproduct only because someone is now uh, present when eating, finding coping mechanisms for emotions that are in addition to food, food's okay, you know, but then you have other coping mechanisms as well. And they've spent their, you know, lives trying to diet, and now they're not dieting anymore. And so the, that excitement about foods that have been restricted isn't there anymore. And so they may just naturally, their bodies may need less food than they've been eating. That happens sometimes, but it's, it's not, if it's intentional, it's never going to be, um, you're never going to heal because the intentional part sets up that future deprivation that's saying, well, I want to lose weight. Yeah, I can eat what I want, but I should only eat, you know, a half a sandwich instead of a whole sandwich. And Right. In a lot of ways, intuitive eating is about separating the way that you eat from like not having any other motivations from that aside from just eating and nourishing yourself. I'm sorry. That's what you're saying. Like meaning in a lot, in, in a lot of ways, intuitive eating is almost like separating the way that you eat or what you eating from any other outside, like any other outcome, you know, like, like a smaller body or, or like oh, trying to okay. get stronger or outcome. something like that. Yeah. I, the reason I was confused, I thought you meant doing other things. I mean, we go out to eat with people. So no, of course. No, no, no. The, just no, I mean, any other there. outcome. Yeah. Any like, other outcome. That's great. Yes. Yeah, yes. thinking about it in terms of just I'm eating and the, the goal here is to eat and be satisfied. The goal here is not to then, you know, become smaller or, you know, become exactly. a bodybuilder or something like that. Well, the goal is to nourish myself with foods that are appealing and satisfying and my and so that my body feels good and nourished. I mean, nourishment is fine. We all need to eat or else we'll, you know, we'll starve to death. We have to eat, but the foods need to be foods that give us pleasure and joy if we can get them. I mean, sometimes you go to someone's house who doesn't know how to cook and, oh, well, it's just one meal, but for the most part, which I always like to say is those are my four favorite words for the most part, nothing here is perfect. Nothing here is all or nothing for the most part. We want to find ways to uh, find the foods that are really delicious and satisfying assuming we have food security. Now, there are a lot of people out there who are in poverty, who are insecure, who can't even get enough food. So it's a caveat in terms of intuitive eating. They, they can still be working on many of the principles, but you know they may eat way more than their bodies need if they get access to food because they don't know when they're going to get it again. And that's a piece of this deprivation thing because they don't know that they'll always have it. Right, right, exactly. Um, which, brings, which brings me to 
my next question, which also kind of ties into what you were saying about poverty, because we see that in a lot of poorer neighborhoods, we have what we are what they're called food deserts, where you right. know there's there are some neighborhoods. I know this is especially true in New York, where there are no grocery stores, or there are no um, there are no places where fresh food is readily available, and right. those neighborhoods tend to have higher instances of obesity, a word I know you don't uh-huh. like, um, uh-huh. obesity, high blood pressure, those kinds of things, because they're eating highly processed foods, you know, the kinds of things that don't, not, not, well, I don't want to say because they're eating highly, it's yes, generally was... attributed to, um, yeah, exactly. it's, it's generally say. attributed to a poor diet, um, which brings me to the next question, which is, where does processed food fall into this? You know, the, the modern invention that is processed food, shouldn't we be avoiding all that crap? Oh, no, absolutely, we should not be avoiding it, and I wouldn't call it crap. <laughs> Might call it play food. That's my name for food that isn't necessarily real high in nutrient value. But, but before I answer that, I just want to say something about these neighborhoods where there are food deserts, where, where people are so low in funds that all they can afford is fast food if there happens to be a fast food restaurant around. The only way they're feeding their families is by foods that are not very high in nutrient density. Let's not judge them. Thank God they've got oh, some food not. to feed the family. Of course so I not. Just, yeah, of course I, not. I just wanted to say that. Okay, so processed foods. Well, you know, if I cook brown rice, I'm processing it. So we have to also <laughs> understand what processing means. Maybe an apple off a tree is not processed, but if we're cooking, we're processing food. So it, if something is highly processed where it doesn't even resemble food anymore, you know, it's a made up food that's um, going to appeal to the, you know, to your taste buds because you haven't had it before and you want more and more. Again, habituation will take place if you have it around all the time. Um, but if you, oh, I don't think I explained habituation this time if they didn't hit by all means, go go for it. What is what is habituation? Okay, let me let me break in with that. I know I'm all over the place, but I want to get to the answer to the question. Habituation means the greater the stimulus, the less the response. The more you have of something, the more you have it in a kind of legalized way. There's no judgment about it. It loses its excitement. It loses its thrill, and it just takes its place in your life. Because if you're, especially if you know, you can always get it. So, yeah. So habituation. Habituation uh, so is, if, you know, the example that you touched on earlier is that we have both had a, quite a bit of oral surgery. Right. And when you have, you know, when you're restricted to those very few foods, you know, the ice creams, the smoothies, the blended soups, which are all in their own right delicious. But if that's all you can eat for a week, eventually you don't want to look at any more ice cream for a little while. Exactly. And, and that's where habituation comes in. Yeah, that's where it comes in. So if you happen to find a fun, find a fun food, a play food that's highly processed and you want it, buy it. If you enjoy it, buy a few more bags of it. You're going to find after, um, after about probably three weeks of it, it's just sitting there getting stale. There were these cookies I found at this bakery nearby, a wonderful bakery. And they were these great, big, delicious ginger molasses cookies. I love gingerbread. Yum. I was so excited. So I got a few and then I tried to order more of them and my order kept getting canceled. We don't have any, we don't have any. I finally called them and I said, what's going on? I'm ordering them. Are you running out of them? Oh no, we only make them on the weekends. So I ordered it on the weekend. I got eight of them and I enjoyed them. And then I did it again. They're still sitting around. I don't even want to look at them anymore. Habituation. And it took away the deprivation part because I know I can get them on the weekend. And I got plenty of them to make sure we go through the whole week. Um, So uh, I 
don't have a problem at all with these, as they've called processed foods that are, you know, out there just to make money. I have a problem with the fact that we're not feeding our country, that there are plenty of people who aren't getting, you know, food, but I don't have a problem from an intuitive eating lens for anybody who has the, uh, you know, the privilege to be able to buy lots of different foods and to be able to buy those foods. It'll wear off as long as they're not, um, you know, thinking I'm just going to have this one bag and then I won't buy them again. So do you right. disagree with me, Rivka? No, I don't, I don't disagree with you at all. I do find for myself that when I avoid, not avoid is the wrong word, because I don't intentionally avoid anything. Like I'm past that phase of my life where I'm like, I just don't have patience for it anymore, I guess, for <laughs> lack of a better word. Um, but for me, I do, I do know that when, like, let's say when my husband and I's schedules get busier, um, which happens quite often because we both work kind of ridiculous hours that, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have, you know, sometimes weeks or two where we'll end up eating a lot of takeout because we don't have time to go grocery shopping. We don't have time. Um, we don't have time to cook. And then by the end of like, once you hit like two, three weeks or so, we just feel gross, um, you know, because we're because we're eating a lot more like heavier things, I guess, than we would normally eat if we have time to go grocery shopping or cook. Um, and then sometimes we're able to, you know, sometimes when we we usually notice it when things calm down and we start grocery shopping and cooking again, that and we're and we go like, oh, I feel so much better than I did when I was eating all that fast food. So that's gentle nutrition. That's the last principle of intuitive eating. Once you've gone through making peace with all foods and tuning into hunger and fullness, what you're doing is noticing that your body is giving you a message that two and a half weeks or three weeks of not getting, a, you know, anything fresh, perhaps because it's, well, maybe some of the food you're bringing is fresh, but you know, not the it's apple mostly fried. The <laughs> yeah. Okay. You, your body is saying, uh, Hey honey, you know, feed me some vegetables. And so then you make an effort to find ways to bring that food in. It's not, it's not that it's bad food. It's that it was all that's been available for you and your body doesn't like it to all have it all the time. And right. so you're honoring that wisdom of your body. That's, that's motivating you then to make more of an effort to make some, you know, casseroles or things from home that you can freeze and have when you're working this hard. Yeah. So we definitely work in those kinds is, of cycles. Yeah. And general nutrition is really about listening to your body. Your body will tell you. And that's what you're telling me. Right. But also when it comes to, you know, I, I would find, I would think, I don't know, maybe this is just me imposing my own experience onto everybody else, but I would think that most people would find that avoiding heavily processed foods makes them feel better. But Unless it makes them emotionally upset because they really crave something that's heavily processed and they won't let them help themselves have it. And then they think about it and they see other people eating it and then they sneak it. You know, I mean, right. It, again, healthy again, is, a, healthy to, is a varied term. You know, it's, it's yeah. And healthy let's go to the, for, for the most part, for the most part, I have, you know, very uh, nutrient dense foods. I have a variety of all kinds of wonderful foods that feed my body and make me feel good. And I also have some of that play food. I call it play food. I came up when my son was 16 and pointed his teenage finger at me and said, Hey mom, what happens to people who don't eat as health healthy as you eat? And as at that time, this is many years ago, he's 51 now. So it's many years ago. I, you know, I said, Oh, well, you know, they, I was more into thinking that food really determined your health, not 
Mm-hmm. I have a different feeling about it now. And I told him about, well, I'd probably have more chance of da 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 da. And then he pointed his finger at me and he said, yeah, but I see you eating French fries or I see you eating candy. And I said, yeah, those are my play foods because we all need to have some time for like kids in school. They need play time. They can't be learning all the time. So yes, we, if we can get it, we need nutritious foods. And then there's just foods that are for fun. Right. Those. Yeah, I hear that. That that makes sense to me. It's you know, what I'm thinking back to now is that um, when I was pregnant, I I found it. It was almost I almost didn't have an option but to listen to what my body wanted, because like I had a I had pretty intense cravings where if it was not an English muffin with peanut butter, I didn't want to look at it. Right. Like that was it. It was, it was, you uh-huh. know, for basically my whole first trimester, it was English muffins and peanut butter. And that's what I Thank ate. God. And that's, and that's what, and that's what worked for me. And then there was a point in time where it was like, it's gotta be chicken. And then two weeks later, I can't look at a piece of chicken. If I look at, and like, I would literally start gagging when I looked at a piece of right. chicken or whatever it was like there, I was getting, I almost felt like when I was pregnant, my, my signals, like the volume had just been turned up times a hundred. Exactly. And that exactly. was, and that, and I just didn't have a choice, but to listen. And I think that it's made, made it a little bit easier for me since to, mm-hmm. to kind of like, I don't know, maybe there's just leftovers of that, or maybe I just know more what that sounds like now to, to pay attention to that. And, and yeah, like sometimes you just need the greasy Chinese food and it right. makes you feel better. And sometimes you decide, you, or, you know, you're not going to feel good the next day, but it's worth it. Sometimes. Right. If it's all the time, then you have to ask yourself, what's keeping me from self-care? What's keeping me from getting, you know, my needs met uh, with things that are going to make me feel good too? Because it's it's a, it's all about, uh, is it that you're just craving that food or are you craving that food because you've been so deprived for so long and now you have to have it all the time and now you don't feel well? And, you know, so there's, there's a lot of factors, but it's mostly just listen to your body. Just like you said, when you were pregnant. Right. Like paying attention to that. That's, that's super interesting. Another Uh very interesting category of questions that came in was about situations where food was dangerous. So um, we're talking about allergies, Crohn's, celiac disease, diabetes. How does intuitive eating kind of handle those situations where there does need to be a level of restriction or moderation or policing of what you're eating for lack of a better Well, let's start with celiac disease. You cannot eat gluten celiac disease because it is dangerous it's very dangerous to a person who has celiac very tiny uh, amount of population that has celiac so i want to be sure people understand that intuitive eating is what um you know it's the key for people with different medical conditions because it you are saying to yourself my body is telling me i have worked with people with celiac and before they were diagnosed they were sick all the time they felt terrible they didn't know exactly what was going on but once they were, they stopped having gluten in their lives, then they felt great. So their body was telling them there's something, there's something wrong. It's not always about food, but in that case, you know, it was. Um, if it's uh, allergies, I want to make a point that there is true allergy testing, and then there's a lot of kind of um, on the fringe allergy testing. So you want to make sure that if you're getting allergy tested, that it's in a, with a reputable allergist and you're getting reputable results because. Um, there's a type of allergy testing that basically gives you three, four pages, unfolded pages of things you can't eat anymore when you never thought you had a problem with it. You never had a reaction to it. So you have to be very careful with that. But if you, like, I have an allergy to um, a couple of things and I just don't eat them because I don't want to break out in hives. So I, you make peace with it. If it's a lot of deprivation, then 
you need to do a lot of emotional work around the feelings of having to be deprived. It's, it's not self-imposed excuse me, deprivation. It's not like a diet deprivation. It's a reality that your body does not react well to that. And intuitive eating has the room for honoring individuality with bodies. Uh, with diabetes, you know, um, if it's type one diabetes, people are able to, if they're craving a lot of carbohydrates, just, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Make sure that they're getting enough insulin to cover their, their uh, pair, their insulin with their carbohydrates, that they're getting enough insulin to cover their carbohydrates. If it's type two diabetes, if people eat regularly throughout the day in a balanced way, they feel better. Uh, if they want, if they want a candy bar, they have the candy bar, eat it with some protein and some fiber and so, you know, something else so that your blood sugar doesn't rise quickly, you know, so that there's a more gradual rise, the body will tell you. So the signals are still there. They're just a little more moody. It sounds like, well, and, and we have to take, look, mental health is, as you were saying before, that health is a big, you know, word, mental health is so important. And so um, those feelings of deprivation to be able to have somebody to talk to about it, the, the sadness that one's body is kind of um, betraying them in certain ways. I've had a lot of clients who have had have clients with Crohn's disease, and there are certain foods that they just can't tolerate. And they have emotional feeling, they have feelings, emotional feelings, they have feelings about the fact that their body is are not just not working the way they wish that they were working. So there's a lot to it. It goes very deep, but intuitive eating is part of it. And I, in particular, I have two clients right now who have Crohn's and one I've seen for a long time and she knows just how to take care of it and is not feeling deprived because she's found a lot of things that she really loves. And another one who is newer at intuitive eating and we're finding ways for her to make muffins and cookies that will be okay with her you know, with her Crohn's, with certain, where commercial ones might not be. Going back to processed foods, certain foods aren't going to feel good in her body. So I don't know if that's, you know, clear enough, but it's it's really important. People think that intuitive eating means not only this hunger fullness diet, which is not true, but they think it just means eat anything, anytime as much without any regard to how your body feels. And that's not true. I mean, our tongue is not the only part of our bodies we want to pay attention to. So right you and have a smile on your face tell me yeah <laughs> no because it's I actually had a very similar conversation with someone a while ago where you know I was um she's someone who is a, a pretty intense dieter and and we were just kind of we're good friends so you know it was all in good fun and and I said to her you know one day I'd love for us to like sit down and and not debate it but like really discuss this whole you know intuitive eating versus dieting thing and and she said I can't mm -hmm. she said I can't do it because I feel so strongly that there is this sense of like, if you're, that if you're doing the intuitive eating thing, then you're giving up. You're just saying, you know, screw it. I'm going to eat whatever I want. I'm going to just, you know, have, have whatever suits me. I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to say everything that, you know, this feeling for, this is my own diagnosis of, of her, which, you know, in my very unprofessional opinion, um, her, like she had this very strong feeling of control over the way that she ate. And it was like, if I eat in a very specific way, then I might be miserable, but I will get these results. And like, this is what will happen. And that was very comforting to her. And the idea of taking a more fluid approach that made room for these other things in her life, I think was just terrifying to her. 
Well, yeah. So you have to um, take away that narrative that intuitive eating is just eating all the things you've never let yourself eat before and never eating a salad. I mean, if you're eating a salad, you're not being an intuitive eater. Well, that's not true. You know, right. yeah, maybe for some people when they really engage in this, maybe there's a couple of weeks where all they want are the things that they haven't had, but then they're craving that salad. You know, intuitive eating really helps you get balance. Right. Yeah, exactly. Balance is such a great way to describe it. Something that you touched on when we were talking, you know, about diabetes and and Crohn's and Uh things like that. There's this, I don't know if it's a growing movement, but there's this feeling of people thinking that they can treat food like medicine. Um, Mm. I'm actually thinking of a a particular person in my head right now who has PCOS and eats Mm -hmm. in a very specific way to quote unquote, treat it. Um, She avoids sugar. She avoids, um, it's she avoids like no sugar, no carbs. I don't think she has mm. dairy either. Mm. Like she cut out a ton of these different food groups and mm-hmm. she claims that it helped to control her PCOS symptoms. Um, what, what are your thoughts on something like that? Well, if you really look at the research with PCOS, the most important thing is to eat balanced meals throughout the day on at a regular basis and to eat carbohydrates because we the this is something I want your listeners to hear. The only form of energy that can get from your bloodstream into your brain is carbohydrate, is glucose, the smallest form, glucose, the smallest form of carbohydrate. It's a one molecule substance. It's the only thing that will go into the brain. If you're not taking in carbohydrate, guess what? Your, you, your brain sends out uh, messages to first of all, break down your glycogen stores, which is your stored form of carbohydrate, which will be a few hours worth of carbohydrate. After that, it starts breaking down muscle tissue uh, to uh, convert the amino acids that are the protein in your muscle into glucose. There's a process called gluconeogenesis. Genesis make neo new sugar. So basically what you're doing is you're self-cannibalizing or it's taking the protein you're eating and converting it to glucose. So it's not available for all the reasons that we need protein in our bodies, you know, muscles and and bones of protein. So um, I I don't believe in this, in that um, prescription to not have carbs. I don't believe to not have sugar. Listen to your body again. If, if all you eat is, you know, a bunch of cookies and that's it, or a big piece of cake at one time, maybe you're not going to feel very good. But if you have that, the cookies with a glass of milk and some peanut butter or some nuts, you're going to feel fine. So I'm not, uh, I'm not a proponent of food as medicine, or in that case, it's lack of food as medicine, actually. Yeah, I guess so. It was, was, she's just super like she very highly polices what she eats. And it's, you know, when I see stuff like that and I have, you know, a couple of friends who have pretty severe PCOS and all I'm thinking is if they were seeing this five years ago, you know, before they were diagnosed and had, you know, and were like controlled on medication and things like that, I bet you that they would think that if they would just eat this way, they would, you know, they would start feeling better because they were having like all the same symptoms. And that right. just, and that, that gets me scared. Cause I know that there are teenagers that are watching these people that are, that, that maybe don't know better, maybe haven't had a proper diagnosis or, or gotten the right medication that they need. And that can make things. Well, you know. yeah, I have a question too. that particular friend of yours. Is she in a very small body? Is that what she's trying to control? I don't think so. No, she's not. No, no okay. the pretty average size, I would say. Um, but yeah, it's it's PCOS in particular that fascinates me when it comes to this stuff because it's it's um it's so widespread on such a like there's such a um 
what's the word? There's such a, a large spectrum, spectrum of it. Yeah. Um, that, that it's one of those things that like, yeah, I'm sure that if you have PCOS that you quote unquote feel better, if you cut out sugar, you probably have a really mild case. Well, I would say something else. <laughs> Maybe before they cut out sugar, maybe they weren't eating a lot of other foods as well. You know, maybe they were just not paying attention and they had more of the, the refined foods that we're talking about and they just weren't feeling great because they didn't have balance in their eating. So now they tell themselves they can't have the sugar, they can't have the flour, they cut it out and all they're eating is, you know, vegetables and chicken and whatever. Well, maybe they've added things to their diet <laughs> because there's more room for these other things that they were, you know, just not paying attention. It's, That's it's very nuanced, Rivke. It. It's nuanced. It's not, a, it's not an all or nothing type of thing. So we have to look at the other factors. It's not simply that they changed, you know, they cut out these foods. What else is going right. on? Yeah, I hear that, which brings us to the, this last question, okay. um, you know, this last category I want to say, which is with, you know, when it comes to accepting your body, you know, where, where does that fit in? You know, somebody asks, what comes first, the body satisfaction or the satisfaction of eating? I'm having trouble accepting my body. Can you be happy with what you're eating while being unhappy with your body? So this brings me to body neutrality. It's hard in our culture to just jump right into body acceptance and to think, okay, you know, you spent your whole life being told that you weren't good enough and you had to lose weight. And all of a sudden, two days after doing this work, you're in body acceptance. No, let's go to body neutrality, which is respect for the body, taking care of your body in the best way you can, you can. And to eat foods that are satisfying because you deserve to have, you know, joy and pleasure in eating. I mean, life is hard. There's all kinds of things that happen to take away the pleasure and joy of eating is, you know, is problematic, but it's about not, not saying, Oh, I love my body. Accept my body. Everything's just great. It's like, yeah, I'm having difficulty right now with body acceptance. And I'm so grateful for this body that look, you were pregnant. I was pregnant or that um, this body that can pick up a big box and move it somewhere, or, or that I can take a walk on the beach, or what any kind of any kind of um, movement your body can do. And some people don't have that privilege. Some people are disabled and don't have that privilege. And so it's it's a respect and a joy in the fact that you have a body. Look, I mean, we're on this planet for you know a limited amount of time. Thank goodness we have a body that gets us through it all. So in terms of satisfaction, what comes first with your tongue or your body, I would say we start with let's have meals that are satisfying. And what you're going to find is there's going to be such um, a pleasure in that meal. And when you're finished with it, gratitude that you had a delicious meal. Yes, a moment of sadness that it's over, but you get to eat again in a few hours. And um, you still may not be at that place where you're fully in body liberation. That's a word I like, um, a term I like. It's where you're you're liberated from trying to change your body. You're liberated from beating up, beating yourself up because of your body. You're living your life in the best way you can, being liberated from bad feelings about your body. But I think you have to start with body neutrality. Acceptance is a long way down the road after you've done a lot of work in this. I love that. And I think that's also a really great place to uh, to end us off at. If somebody wants to learn more about you, Elise, or about intuitive eating, yes. where can they go? Well, the first thing is intuitive eating is in its fourth edition. And so if you're going to go and order the book somewhere or buy it in a bookstore, make sure it's the green and yellow one, not the purple and 
pink one or a yellow one, uh, because it's been updated. It first came out in 1995. This fourth edition came out in 2020, just two years ago. So uh, that's the, uh, the way to start. But there are other books as well. Um, I wrote an intuitive eating workbook for teens. And not only was it written for teens, actual teens, but it was written for the teen in each of us. And I have many adults who love that book because it brings them back to the time that their, their eating got disconnected from their wisdom. I would say the majority of my clients, it started when they were, you know, kids, when they were young teens. Um, so there's that. I have an intuitive eating journal. There's a card deck. There's an intuitive eating workbook, grown up one. Uh, so there's lots of there's lots of sources there too. Um, in terms of websites, there's an intuitiveeating.org website that lists so many of the studies that have been done. There's over 170 studies now that validate intuitive eating as an evidence-based process for uh, increased mental and physical health. And um, it also has a link to counselors all over, all over the world who are certified intuitive eating counselors. If you're looking for someone, get someone who's certified if you can. Um, and if you want to become certified, it shows you how to do that. Then I have my own personal website, which is EliseResch.com. And I've got lots of personal things on there. I have some podcasts. I have some talks. I have my words of wisdom, some book recommendations. There's many things on there. It's a more homey kind of <laughs> website and uh and if you really really have a specific question for me you can email me elise rush at gmail but i might not get back to you immediately i try to but i might not get back to it okay so. that's a, that's oh, a and, oh, oh, oh i'm sorry i'm interrupting i'm on instagram so um i'm at elise rush and I'm not a maven on uh, social media. However, I do know how to repost things other people have posted with their, you know, attributed, attributed. You to do them. really great at Instagram. I know we had the same conversation at the end of last episode, but it's yeah. a great account. Oh, okay. Thank you so much. Sometimes I, I've just posted a couple of things. I took pictures of myself just on my own, you know, post. Good for so, you. In, yeah. So I do encourage you if you're on Instagram, Unfollow people who are promoting diet culture, please, because it just makes you feel terrible. And follow intuitive eating people, follow health at every size people, follow people that are going to continue to give you the support you need in this process. So I love that. Um, last question that I want to ask you yes. is, Elise, what does it mean to you to make an impact? Oh, did I say this at the end of the last one? I probably did. Tikkun Olam. Did I mention that? That sounds time? very familiar, but please give give it to me again. Okay. As a Jewish woman, um, my value system includes trying to repair the world, which is called tikkun olam in Hebrew. And um, I believe that if even one person I have affected has a better life, has a more satisfying and, and free life in terms of their relationship to food, then I am starting to repair the world. And so I do as much as I can. That's why I do these podcasts and my writing and my counseling to help people, um, you know, which helps the world. I love that. Thank you so much for coming on today, Lisa. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Elise, her links are in the show notes. On last week's episode, my guest was image consultant Ruthie Porcaccio. We discussed her experiences doing color palettes and getting her own done and why I think it's a dumb trend. Listen to it wherever you're hearing this one. 
the Impactful Podcast is a project of Impact Fashion, the clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 24 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. There are currently 17 people listed by Ora Agunot as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getora.org slash recalcitrant-parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses, original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Riff Gitzkowitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.nyc. As always, here's to making an impact together.